This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. In October 2016, an Access Hollywood video clip of Donald Trump making demeaning remarks about women was leaked. In the aftermath of this revelation, the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, Albert Mueller, wrote for the Washington Post. I'm going to read from that. Trump's horrifying statements heard in his own proud voice revealed an objectification of women and a sexual predation that must make continued support for Trump impossible for any evangelical leader. In the same column, he also wrote, How could family values voters support a man who had, among other things, stated openly that no man's wife was safe with him in the room? A casino titan who posed for the cover of Playboy? A man who boasted that he did not repent of his well-documented sins and would not? That answer also has a name. Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton, this is me speaking now, will not be the Democratic nominee in 2020, but this time, Mueller will be voting for Trump. Last week, Mueller said, quote, that the partisan divide had become so great and Democrats had, quote, swerved so far to the left on issues of abortion, religious liberty, and LGBT issues that he planned to vote Republican for the rest of his life. Mueller also claimed that Trump had been, quote, more consistent in pro-life decisions than, quote, any president of the United States of any party. And we wanted to discuss where the Never Trump Evangelical Movement is at in 2020. It is Wednesday, April 22nd, and you're listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, digital media producer at Christianity Today. And I'm Ted Olson, editorial director at Christianity Today. All right, Ted, before we get to our guest, I would just love to hear your gut reaction to this particular bit of news. Surprised and not surprised at the same time. You know, I have seen a number of folks who were fairly prominent uh, critics uh, of, of Trump in the last election these days saying, well, I don't know, maybe I probably will vote for him. I kind of have been expecting, you know, that 81% that people keep referring to. We can <laughs> debate for the rest of the podcast about whether the 81% is accurate. I think it's going to go up in 2020, and I think that probably leaders uh, like Mueller will see a, a, a lot more of them between now and November. It surprised me only in the sense that I think Mueller was one of those lead critics who had been so prominent. You know, on the on the political side, you you have a number of people who who had been political critics who, who are now positive. So my I don't know about you, Morgan. My social media stuff just kind of blew up. It it, it was as if something truly epic had happened. And so I kind of rolled my eyes with the amount of of blowback that there that there had been. I, there's a there's a thing that that Moeller brings with him about anything he says, where people people feel the need to comment on social media, and then in addition to that, anytime there's a Trump thing, people feel the need. And I you know I don't want to be like oh I'm above all of that, but I <laughs> I did mm. I did I did feel the need to turn off Twitter for the rest of the day. And I'm like well all right I guess I know what Twitter is going to be. Well what Christian Twitter anyway is going to be about for the next for the next uh, 48 hours. And so I can tune back in on Monday. 
I think I was a, a lot more surprised than you were for many reasons. One, you know, I think that what you just said hinted at the fact that Moeller is not just kind of any Christian thought leader. You and I had kind of discussed that many Southern Baptist circles, there's a little bit of a cult of personality around him. He also is in people's ears, you know, Monday through Friday through his podcast, The Briefing. And I know a number of people who listen to that and kind of enjoy getting his spin and his take on how he's understanding the current events that are happening. And at least when I've listened to it before, there's definitely a gravitas that he approaches things when he is talking about them. He notably did not give all of these answers that we had just talked about in the introduction on that podcast. He did that on a different Q&A session, which may be important to note. Yeah. Together but, for the Gospel, right? Yes. The the Together for the Gospel, I guess, digital version of the conference that they, since they didn't meet in person this year. I left myself just really scratching my head about why he had chosen to speak out about this particular issue in that particular moment. What type of capital, why he wanted to spend the capital that he was spending. Yeah, it doesn't seem like some that's something that Mueller does very lightly. You know, he seems like he keeps a very kind of managed sense of how his he's quoted and how he's seen. And yeah, I just was like, wait, why would you want to put that out on that medium at this time? And especially given that we're in the middle of this pandemic, too, and it seems to be showcasing a lot of the president's incompetence at this time. It felt very strange to then say that he would be backing it, whereas I would I guess I would expect it if this would have been more of a thing say, if we were in September or October, and it suggested that there might be critical reasons to think that Trump would not be reelected. So that that was just seemed strange to me. me, it, was, me ask, it felt more off the cuff. I don't really think of Mueller as being an off the cuff person and this felt off the cuff. Yeah, I I, I get that. <laughs> Having watched the video, I, it, it didn't necessarily feel off the cuff. But let me ask you this. I mean, you and I have talked about, you know, some of the changes within the Southern Baptist Convention, some of the backlash that we're seeing and kind of the movements being created in kind of a backlash to kind of what perceived as a as social justice concerns within Southern Southern Baptist Convention. I was a little bit more surprised to see Moeller and some folks kind of support kind of the anti-social, you know, there's this, there's this documentary being made, there's these, these statements circulating, and for more to, to not fully get on board, but to put in some ways to support these concerns against, you know, the social justice movement within the Southern Baptist Convention. And so I kind of was seeing these comments as being a follow-on to some of some of that move. How about I, I will just add a caveat to say that he also has been president when SBTS put out this what they called the report on slavery and racism in the history of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And so essentially at the end of 2017, I'm just reading from this or paraphrasing from this report right now, he put together this committee of six different people to study the legacy of slavery and racism at the school. And they published this, I believe it's, I don't know, 70 pages, 80 pages long report about what happened. So I would just say that his kind of record on these things has been, I don't want to say inconsistent, because I'm sure in the way that he perceives it, there's a consistency to it and a, a logical understanding of how they all fit together. But something like that, of course, suggests that he's trying to make the school a more hospitable place for African-American students. I think I've seen a couple prospective African-American students now say that they're not going to go to the school. That, again, is interesting with regards to trying to understand his motivations and, again, the calculus that he's trying to make when he says this stuff. Ted, I'm just wondering if you can tell us who our guest is, yes, who also I'm wrote eager. about Mueller's decision. <laughs> I'm eager to get to this guest because if we're going to talk about some of these topics, I think of no one better than David French. David French is senior editor at The Dispatch. 
He's a columnist for Time. And his book, Divided We Fall, will be released in September. He's a former major in the United States Army Reserve. And quick to listen listeners will be interested in his podcasts. There are two, in fact, you can subscribe to. There's the Dispatch podcast, which is kind of the main podcast for the Dispatch site and and collection of newsletters. And then there's another called Advisory Opinions, which is a little bit more, he's a little bit more front and center there. And it is a really great uh, law-focused podcast. Also, he has a call, as I mentioned, he has a column and a newsletter, the French Press. Uh, It is free Sundays, which is great for uh, CT folks because it tends to be more focused on Christian issues. Issues, religious issues, and then it's also twice a week as well. Uh, beyond that, beyond pardon me, behind the dispatch paywall. One of the reasons we wanted to talk to David about uh, some of this is he is more or less the face of evangelical opposition to Trump, uh, along with someone like uh, you know, Mike Gerson of the Washington Post or, or Pete Weiner. Uh, he even has many of our listeners. I believe we covered it in Quick to Listen. We'll remember the the phrase "David Frenchism" got bowed about a few months ago. You know, whenever someone has an ism named after them, it's, it's an honor to have them on the podcast. So, so welcome, welcome to the welcome to the show, David. Thanks so much. But I have to note that the Frenchism was not intended as a compliment. <laughs> this is this is true. It was this supposed true. to be a pejorative. So. But, but, but in truth, neither were most isms, it seems to me. So, so <laughs> well, that, that, well, that is absolutely true. Sexism, racism, Frenchism. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, great to have you, David. And I'm glad that we can ask you a number of these questions. I, I suppose... We should just start with Moeller, since that's what Ted and I were talking about. I'm just curious, what was your reaction? How long have you known Moeller for? And were you surprised to see his remarks last week? I've not known him for a very long time. I was a guest. I've been a guest on his podcast. Uh, we've had some conversations, but I haven't you know, known him personally. But I, I have to say, I am not surprised. I, I can At this point, I can probably count on the fingers of one hand the number of people who are publicly prominent evangelicals that would really surprise me if they supported Trump. From that standpoint, I was not terribly surprised, even in spite of many of the statements made in 2016. I mean, my goodness, we have 20 years of records of evangelicals making very definitive statements about the importance of character and politics now lining up behind Trump. I wasn't surprised. I didn't expect him to do it, which is different from saying being surprised that he did it. But I I wasn't terribly surprised, really. Were you surprised in 2016 that his comments were so strongly critical of Trump? No. You know, if you go back to 2016, there were many things going on at once. So you had a lot of absolutely principled objections to Donald Trump that this is just not a guy who has the character to be the president. You also had tactical objections to Donald Trump. In other words, thinking he's a definite loser and you want to be a part of the emerging conservative faction after he loses that says, no, we've tried your way, now try my way. You had a real mix, I think, and I don't even think people had fully sorted out it in their own minds, the extent to which the principle and the tactical melded together. And then you had this other aspect of it, which was sort of the doubtful objection that was, look, not only does he have bad character, not only do I think he's probably going to lose, but I don't even think that I can count on him to deliver on any single promise of any kind at all. Of those three factors, the thought that he'd lose, obviously he won, and the doubt that he would follow through on various promises regarding religious liberty or or judges has been absolved. And so when you're talking about people who are 
thinking into 2016, those are sort of three of the strands that we're working together. Now, there's also another strand that I was working on, which was just the fitness aspect. Is this guy competent enough? Does he have the mental acuity, the mental faculties, the temperament, sort of the ideological, intellectual temperament, the wisdom to be a leader? And that was sort of a fourth strand with me. I think that what's happened with a lot of evangelicals is the character aspect has really receded. The other aspect, which is, has he done things for religious liberty? Yes. Has he, by and large, nominated good judges? Yes. Has really come to the fore. And so it's created a huge tension. One other thing that, that is very important is, and you guys know this at, C, at CT very well, there is a very large undercurrent of anger and fury within the white evangelical world in support of Trump. And so that if you are opposed to Trump, there is an awful lot of cruelty and anger and malice and fury that heads in your direction. Almost every time you peek your head above the foxhole to, to write or tweet or talk about this guy. And so there's this very strong pressure that it's almost sort of like the old saying that there's few, few feelings better than when somebody stops hitting you with a hammer. <laughs> that there's right. this constant <laughs> hammering. There's this constant hammering that happens when you are not supporting Trump. And part of this is a reflection of the character of the man because he specializes in cruelty and malice himself. And so a lot of the advocacy on his behalf, even sadly within the larger Christian world, echoes that cruelty and that malice and that rel those relentless personal attacks. There's one thing, if there's one word that comes up most often in the letters that we've seen here at CT, and I know I've, I've seen it in the comments to some of the things you've written, is people saying that they, you know, they want... A, quote unquote, a fighter, you know, they want. And I think that that, that is interesting. That is the kind of the dominant lens, I think, that, that a lot of people are are viewing the Trump presidency. You have you have a long history of both legal work, uh, supporting, I mean, literally, you know, I guess advocating, but I, I suppose uh, fighting in one sense uh, in the courts on behalf of religious liberty and this kind of thing. But you've, you know, you've been around over the decades and you've seen a lot of kind of evangelical rhetoric about, you know, uses some of that fighting, fighting for rights language. Do you see this as chickens coming home to roost? Or is this really something new in the last, since 2016? I think there is a sad reality of sort of the larger evangelical voting public. It's really hard to disentangle it, just essentially the Republican Party. If you're going to talk about sort of evangelical Republicans, of the two words, what would you put in all caps? Would it be evangelical or would it be Republican? And I think that what you've seen is that in spite of sort of 20 years of statements to the contrary, going all the way back to 1998 and the, the apex of the Clinton scandals, is for a long time, I think evangelical Republicans thought of themselves as evangelical in all caps and Republican in regular case. When push came to shove, it, when it came to your public political persona, what ended up happening is that evangelical was in lowercase and Republican was an uppercase. When you read something like the Southern Baptist Convention's resolution on moral character and politicians, you realize it's just completely incompatible with support of Trump. So this is the 1998 resolution that was passed in Salt Lake City that contains a number of theological statements about the importance of character and politicians with some responsive, be it resolved clauses that say, well, what's our Christian obligation? And so one of the whereas clauses is, whereas 
tolerance of serious, serious wrong by leaders, sears the conscience of the culture, bonds unrestrained immorality and lawlessness in the society, and surely results in God's judgment with some scriptural citations. If in a vacuum you asked a Christian, is that a true statement? Yes, absolutely. And then there was the resolved clauses, like be it resolved, we urge all Americans to embrace and act on the conviction that character does count in public office and to elect those officials and candidates who, although imperfect, demonstrate honesty, moral purity, and the highest character. Is that consistent with voting for Donald Trump? And the answer is no, it's just not. And so what ended up happening, I think, is evangelical Republicans for a long time could see no tension between those two terms. And that allowed them to sail forward with some very confident moral declarations. But then in 2016, those two terms, evangelical and Republican, became in great tension with each other in some important ways based on the declarations made for years and years and years. And one term yielded to the other. That's my argument. I mean, I I remember in the early mid-Bush years talking to a very long-time reporter, the Washington Post, who covered religion and and politics. And we got into a discussion about, you know, was kind of evangelical voting, quote-unquote, kind of in play? Like, were were evangelicals more swing voters? You know, I kind of came of age in the 90s, and and in that first Clinton uh, election, you know, more more than a third of, of white evangelical voters, you know, voted for Clinton. And then with each kind of subsequent election, you know, that, that number got, you know, smaller and smaller. But in the middle of, you know, the Bush Bush era, I was saying, you know, I mean, I could see a Democrat getting another, you know, going up to a third. This is, I think, Barack Obama was emerging on the scene. He said, nope, not going to happen. I was like, what do you mean? You know, I, I know people who will. And he's like, yeah, yeah. But he says, you know, you're underestimating the behavior of people who, you know, pull a lever over and over and over again, Republican. And he says, you know, over, over time, the more times you, you, you take this action uh, of, of, you know, it's an action that reinforces an identity. He's like, you know, so, so by now, uh, yes, a number of these evangelicals who, who may have voted for Clinton have voted Republican by now. And he said they, they just, they have done it so much that, that now they identify more as Republican. And that number is just going to keep shrinking. And I argued so strongly that I thought, no, I, I think that, that there's still a swing, but the numbers have not necessarily proved, proved my case there. I, I, and that's why I'm, I'm doubtful that, that 81% will be, you know, the high watermark. I think it, it can it can increase from there. Part of it for the reason that some of the people who may have answered yes to the are you do you consider yourself evangelical or born again in, in twenty sixteen may answer answer no to that question in twenty twenty. I guess one question that I have following up on that is this SBC resolution does specifically mention, you know, electing officials. One thing that has kind of kept, we've kept facing here at Christianity Today is this question of <laughs> that word you know, supporting Trump. You know, what do, what does it mean to su- to support Trump? Should it matter? Should we give attention to the fact that Mueller made these comments in in response to a question in an Ask Anything forum? I guess when we think about you know Christian leaders talking about Trump and talking about that they're telling people that they're going to vote for Trump or that they're not going to vote for Trump. Does answering a question on why you're voting the way you're you're going to vote is that different from like say you know Wayne Grudem another you know kind of prominent SBC Southern Baptist uh, theologian proactively wrote an article uh, on why he's supporting Trump I guess the question is you know a for Mueller does it matter that it was an answer to a question and and b the general principle should Christian leaders say no comment when asked about their voting or is it an important uh, part of leadership to kind of state your plans 
Well, I think part of it depends on what is your role. I'm evangelical. I'm PCA. I'm not SBC. I'm PCA. But as part of my public role in life, I feel like it's important for people to know where I stand politically. Now, if you're a pastor of a local church, I think I can think of a million reasons why you would not want to engage in a political endorsement. Now, the one, but you do raise a, a very interesting distinction between supporting and voting. What ends up happening in, in 99 people out of 100 is that those two terms get very blurred. The instant you say, I want to vote for Donald Trump, you are declaring, I want him to win the election. And as soon as that happens, a powerful incentive structure kicks in. And that incentive structure says, I now, if I, every time I criticize him, I'm providing fuel for those who would seek to defeat him. If you're a supporter of his, there's a very, there are reasons why when Trump gets up there and he speaks and everyone around him then starts to just praise him or that he really exhorts a strong arm on governors and others to try to get them to praise him, you, you suddenly put on the red jersey. And when you're wearing the red jersey, just like when you're wearing the blue jersey, there is a very strong incentive to minimize the things that he does poorly and to maximize the things that he does well, which then contributes to sort of these one thing we should be clear about, when we're talking about a lot of this stuff, we're talking about people who inhabit sort of the political class of the United States. Rank and file American voters are often not possessed with even a fraction of the knowledge about their candidates that a lot of these people inhabiting the political class possess. What you're doing is, is you're essentially often, and again, 99 times out of 100, look at it this way. As soon as you say, I'm voting for Trump, it's almost as if you become Trump's lawyer for free. And what does a lawyer do? A lawyer argues the interests of his client. But in this instance, it's also your own interest because you've added yourself to the roster. And so what begins to happen, and, and you've seen this, is this consistent pattern of maximizing Trump's qualities and minimizing his faults. And it, it repeats itself and it becomes so self-reinforcing that I will speak to people who should know better, who are completely unaware of common criticisms and common facts about Trump because they've become so, and I'm not going to say Mueller is that. I can think, and I can count on the fingers of one hand, the number of, of Christians who have said, I'm going to vote for Trump, who are still able to call out bad things that he does publicly because it, it becomes very rare, very fast. David, let me ask you a question. I mean, that sounds like possibly an argument against voting. I mean, this is an argument very similar to what I have heard in journalism circles, you know, where, where a lot of news reporters will, you know, not vote because they're like, no, something happens to my brain once I pull that lever. I have, I have declared a side. And as much as I want to <laughs> trick my brain into neutrality, then it, it, becomes, it becomes more difficult. It sounds like the easiest way... The easiest way to be an honest broker as a Christian, given what you're saying, would also be to say maybe Christians should should abstain lest they compromise and stop criticizing things that need to be criti criticized. Is that the argument or is there a better, no. is there a better so way? I think the way I look at it is, is this. I think a couple of months ago I wrote because people have it, my my stance against Trump is pretty well known. And so people ask me, well, how do you decide whether or not to vote or how do you decide who to vote for? I don't like this idea of a, of a checklist that says somebody who is going to be pro-religious liberty. So I'm, I'm socially conservative. 
I'm pro-religious liberty. I've been pro-life my whole adult life. I I started what I believe is the first independent pro-life student club at Harvard Law School. I was a keynote speaker at Students for Life for America, represented where I made a promise that when I was at ADF at the time, Alliance Defending Freedom, we'd represent any pro-life student in America for free that was having their rights violated. And we kept that promise. So I have been resolutely pro-life, remain resolutely pro-life. But I look at these issues as necessary but not sufficient for my vote. And there's a difference between saying, I'm going to vote for the pro-life person versus saying there is a a condition that is necessary but not sufficient. And I have sort of a two-pronged test. It's, It's pretty simple. One is, does the person that is seeking my vote, because nobody's entitled to your vote, nobody. You are not under an obligation to vote for anybody. So nobody's entitled to your vote. So myself, two questions. Does this person possess the character that is commensurate with the office that they seek? In other words, the more powerful the office, the higher the character bar that I'm going to set. I believe competence is an aspect of character. Competence requires certain habits of discipline and intellectual curiosity. They're an aspect of character. And do they share my political values? Now, neither test is a test of perfection. No politician is going to align perfectly with me on everything. No politician has perfect character. But I refuse to listen to this idea that because no politician is perfect, therefore we can't make a moral judgment about character. Nobody applies that test in normal life, so stop doing it for the presidency. If test A and test B is met, you get my vote. If A or B is not met, you do not get my vote. And I think what has ended up happening is that a lot of evangelicals have said, I'm discarding A in spite of the, the character test, in spite of everything that we've said over the last 22 years. It's gone, and we're not going to explain to America why. And then on B, we're not even going to take a terribly holistic look at what are all the policy positions. We're just going to go through the checklist, which is abortion, sexuality, religious liberty. You know, one of the things that was disappointing about the uh, Mueller's announcement, and that, that's one thing that I articulated in the piece is that he made this announcement in the midst of a pandemic and terrible recession that may actually turn into a depression that while I don't put all that on on Trump's feet I mean he China bears an enormous amount of blame part of this is just nobody's going to respond perfectly to a pandemic I mean there are countries that have done very 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 well like Taiwan and South Korea and others but it's very hard to respond well to a pandemic but he just did some really incompetent things. The president of the United States did really, really incompetent things that had a severe cost. And then to come in the middle of that while we're bearing that cost and to say four more years to me seemed to be indicating that what evangelicals are doing is as long as you're okay on the checklist, no matter your character, no matter what else is happening in the country, we're with you. And I just found that to be very narrow. That's really interesting, David, because I'm just trying to think about what you brought up at the beginning of this conversation when you were talking about kind of the boxes and promises that Trump had made initially with regards to abortion and religious liberty and so forth and how by and large it seems like he has lived up to those promises that he made. You know, you talked about too how some of the character questions have kind of just receded during that time, maybe because of these actions taking place. The one thing that I've been really confused about or felt a lot of dissonance around has to be, I think, Trump's just consistent cruelty, which I would say is a little bit different than character. If I, I just separate that out to think of like character, I kind of think the stuff that he's maybe doing, quote unquote, off the job, whatever that means. Whereas the cruelty, I think, of, is often being expressed while he's actually 
on as president. So obviously, anyone can look at his Twitter feed for examples of that or interactions that he's had with members of the media or with other people that he felt unfairly criticized him and some of the vehemence that that's come out. Or I, I think many people would also identify cruelty in some of the positions that he's taken against people that are very vulnerable in our society. So people that are immigrants or people that are poor or people of color and so forth. When you're talking about this checklist thing, are you saying that you think so many people just become so narrowed in on that checklist that they don't even see that cruelty? Or is this something that they've just been completely insulated to? Or because they're not a member of the people that he is directing this to, it doesn't matter as much? I, I live in a very red county in a very red state. Not like I'm some sort of Beltway journalist who's just hanging out sipping cocktails with a bunch of progressive journalists. I'm a, a conservative Christian living in a conservative Christian region of the country. And I can tell you that a ton of people not only do not care about that cruelty, they are happy about it. And people don't want to hear that. How dare you say that there are these Christians who are thrilled and happy about Trump the way Trump fights? And now they may say, I've never been cruel to a political opponent in my life, but they like what Trump does. This goes back to the he fights. And when they say he fights, it's not proposing legislation. It's not enacting regulations. It is the daily combat that you see. That's the fighting. What they forget is that there are other Republicans who've actually accomplished more for the causes that they care about without treating people like this. You know, for example, I keep hearing in, in Al, Al Mohler very sadly, and he's not the only one, and, and I don't want to pick on him because, I, as I said in my piece, I respect him. I, he has done marvelous things in the course of his life. I respect the heck out of him. I'm, I'm not one of these people who says, oh, well, you made what I believe is a political mistake to the dustbin of history with you. I mean, that's just ridiculous. We're talking about a discrete issue that I think he's not correct, that he's wrong about. He was talking about, and this is something you constantly hear from pro-life Trump supporters, which is that he's done more for life than any other president. What? He's enacted some decent or proposed some decent regulations. He's nominated some good judges. That's what the Bush administration did. And Bush also got two big statutes through Congress. Born Alive Infant Protection Act, and the partial birth abortion ban. Trump will end his presidency, whether it's in four years or eight years, barring anything unusual with no significant pro-life legislation. None. They say he's done more for religious liberty. He hasn't done as much for religious liberty as, wait for it, Bill Clinton did. Bill Clinton passed two statutes, the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act, which a lot of people forget about, and the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, that those two statutes have done an enormous amount of good for religious liberty, far more good than any set of regulations. And so, you know, people have such myopic views of history. And again, people have busy lives. I'm not talking about rank and file voters. I'm talking about people who are politically engaged to the level of the evangelical leadership. And they consistently overhype Trump and underappreciate the level of the cruelty that he projects and the effect it is having on this evangelical Republican community. The level of cruelty that I see around me directed towards political opponents is off the charts. The level of cruelty that I have experienced and my family has experienced is off the charts. Nothing about it that resonates with, you know, bless those who persecute you, love your enemies. None of that resonates. And I know, again, I'm not saying all evangelicals, but that is such a dominant tone of the discourse. It's again, goes back to this is what happens when you take the character test and you just throw it away. 
In our broken world, it can be hard to see how Jesus is at work making all things new. That's why every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear through redemptive storytelling and global reporting. Whether it's a pastor in Brazil who uses CT in Portuguese to lead his ministry, or a young believer who wants to think biblically about our culture, CT comes alongside believers to illuminate what it looks like to follow Jesus in today's world. Jesus is transforming his world. CT is equipping his church. Give a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying, and sirens go off, and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? Well, I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't... I, I didn't come home. But they, all my friends that were here were murdered. Here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. Having said all that, David, I am curious if since the 2016 election happened, if there have been moments when you have felt your own never Trump convictions being tested and if you can share a little bit about what those circumstances were. No. <laughs> yeah. Not all at right. all. Um, I mean, look, I had three main concerns about Trump. Trump's character, including competence, Trump's, Trump's policies, and the people around Trump. Other than that, he was fine. <laughs> but there has not been a moment since he's been president where his character, where there has been any evidence that Trump is anything other than the person that he's been and was during the campaign. It's almost kind of a joke at this point, like he'll have a really good press conference or he'll give a good speech. And people will say, well, this is the day Donald Trump became president. And then 14 hours later, he's tweeting out nonsense, you know, something that would be completely intolerable if any Democratic Democrat did it to conservative evangelicals. And so on the character point, he's not changed. Now, on the policies, there was a point in 2017 where I was much more positive about this presidency than I am right now. I mean, he had he passed a decent, I'd call it a B minus tax cut. He had demonstrated that he was going to nominate good judges. He actually seemed to be on the verge of a sensible immigration compromise before that got torpedoed. And I was in favor of moving the, the embassy to Jerusalem, which is a very minor, minor point, but you know, a good thing. And I was thinking, wow, this is a better policy outcome than I thought. You know, he begins this process of cozying up to Kim Jong-un. He launches a trade war that has negative consequences. He undermines alliances. He, you know, when I look at it, all of these people say to me, well, you've got it. You can't object to Trump's policies. I'm thinking, oh, I can. 
I can because I don't view politics just through the prism of the simple checklist. And then he continues to surround himself. I mean, he walked into the White House with Steve Bannon at his side. And Steve Bannon had said before he joined the Trump team that he wanted Breitbart, his publication, to be a platform of the alt-right. And for those listeners who don't know, alt, the alt-right is a white nationalist movement. And that guy was the chief strategist for the president of the United States. And so, no, I've never really been t- tempted. I had a question about what is it that you're that you're hoping for. Uh, there was an interesting piece published this week by Andrew Walker. For those who don't know, he's associated both with Southern Seminary, he's, he's a faculty there, and he's associated with Russell Moore's Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission as a, a scholar there. Uh, anyway, he published a piece this week, kind of at least implicitly arguing that kind of Christian never-Trumpers are are binding the conscience of, of fellow believers and, and to some degree treating Trump voters, maybe if not as, as, as total unbelievers, uh, at least uh, making sinful actions. I'm curious if you think that, that voting for Trump is actually a sin? Do you think that the Christians are, are obligated not to vote for Trump? Or what is it? If they do vote for Trump, that they're obligated to... Uh, I think it's a mistake. There's a wide spectrum of, in, of people here. So the bottom line is you have tens of millions of Americans who... I'll give you a great example. So not long ago, I was at a, a church event. This super sweet lady comes up to me and, and she says, David, why don't you like our president? There's a lot of reasons, but I've kind of, you know, in super fast conversations, I just tried to very kindly say to her, I just wish we had a president who lied a lot less. And she looked at me and with absolute sincerity said, he lies? It reaffirmed to me, we're dealing with a wide variety of human knowledge about who Trump is and what Trump has done. Look, there's an awful lot of Christians. They're going to go into the voting booth and based on what they know, what they understand, what their experience is, they're going to vote for Donald Trump. God bless them. You know, I don't begrudge them that vote. What I'm talking about is the political class of Christian leaders who know facts, who know history, who are leaders, who are intellectual leaders who are theological leaders. They know about the 1998 resolution. They know about the history of evangelical engagement in the culture. I think that many of them are making a grave mistake and some of them are sinning. When I say that they're sinning, they are misleading their congregations about who Trump is. They're misleading their listeners about the past, the present, and the future. And I think some of that is flat out sinning. And if, if you perceive me as trying to prick their conscience, you perceive that accurately. Most of my friends are going to vote for Trump. Basically, my entire extended family outside of my immediate family is going to vote for Trump. Love them. It's not like we sit around talking politics all the time. We talk SEC football far more than we talk about the presidential race. When you're talking about the class of people who've been in, engaged in the intersection between faith and politics for a long time, and when I see them use hypocritical rhetoric, deceptive rhetoric often devolve into cruelty. A lot of them are sinning. I mean, let's just, it, they are. And we're not supposed to say that, oh, how dare you? I don't know how else to describe it when you're presenting a deceptive picture when you know better. No, I mean, I think it's part of accountability. Why do you not call out a lie for a Republican when you would for a Democrat? David, some of the stuff that you're saying actually makes me think about the African-American community. And that was something that you mentioned in your most recent newsletter. And I wanted to just talk about that Christian community in particular. 
during the not so distant past of the Obama administration, I remember one of the interesting things that happened was that African-Americans did criticize President Obama, of course. One of the most strident critics, I believe, was Cornell West, for instance. And I, I just found that interesting, right, is that there were African-American leaders who did not feel like they needed to kiss his ring or get behind him. I'm just curious, do you think there are some lessons that white evangelicals can learn about political participation, engagement, and voting from this community? Well, so number one, I think that what you'll often have is sort of an evangelical, a white evangelical argument that goes something like this, which is, this is how Christians should vote because X, Y, Z. You say, well, wait a minute, there's a whole community of Christians, church-going Christians, theologically orthodox, who completely disagree with this. A lot of that just sort of gets shoved away. And what I'm trying to open people's eyes to is that there are streams of theologically orthodox, small orthodox Christianity that make dramatically different choices than the white evangelical community. And I feel like the white evangelical community is fooling itself if it is believing that what it is engaging in is some sort of dispassionate theological analysis that is yielding an inevitable outcome, because that's not what's happening, because there are other believers who are just as orthodox as you are, who have reached radically different conclusions, which should tell us not necessarily that African-American voters are right and white evangelical voters are wrong, but that maybe this voting decision is more up for grabs than we tend to think it is when we're locked in our tribal political affiliations. Maybe when it comes to a God's eye view of this, the voting decision is more up for grabs. That's the point I want to get across, is that this sort of white evangelical population is that they're kind of fooling themselves if they think they're divorcing the culture they're around from everything other than some sort of religious calculation. They're not. And that we need to be able to appreciate the decisions of other Christians who all other regards would line up with us, would, you know, be able to agree with the Westminster, you know, the catechism, would be able to sign a statement of faith, who can say the Apostles' Creed, who believe the, you know, the truth of the Bible, that all of these people are reaching different conclusions. So what does that mean? And I think I do wonder when you see these types of things, you know, to what extent there is some a little bit of arrogance in there about one's own theology and where it leads. If (laughs) if it's not even seen as a viable option or put on the table and we do allegedly believe these people are brothers and sisters in Christ, because I would agree that it doesn't even necessarily come up in conversation, you know, in terms of like, well, Christians don't agree with this type of issue. It only seems to be restricted to what a certain number of what white evangelical leaders would put forth. Um, what, like, give me an example, Morgan. I'm thinking of being on Twitter as these conversations go, where things will spiral into generalizations, and people will demo- will bemoan the fact that it doesn't feel like there's options, or that all evangelicals are lining up a particular candidate, and not just saying like, "Oh, but the whole body of Christ in the U.S. votes tons of different ways." You know, I wonder what it would look like to research some of their, the ways that they're thinking about voting or ask them how their approaches are. Especially, I think we see this a lot whenever we look at levels of, I don't know, piety in terms of African-Americans in particular and white evangelicals and how closely aligned they are. Yes. Um, Mm -hmm. Two most church-going populations in the U.S. Yes. And then very little 
I guess, interest in asking them some of these questions about how to be civically engaged or how they might think about approaching how they're going to be voting either. Because I would imagine many African-American Christians have not been happy with whom they've had to vote for at various times, but have nevertheless felt like they've had to put someone up there to vote for them. Well, and you raise a really good point. A lot of what's happened is evangelical Republicans have dismissed Black Christian support for Democrats. At the one hand, you and you see this all the time, like, well, they've been deceived or they've been hoodwinked by a democratic establishment that doesn't really care about them. On the other hand, you'll say, well, you'll write off the Democrat, Black Democrat support and say, well, that's a product of a very unique history of racial oppression that hopefully is that racial oppression shrinks into the background that the Black Democrat vote will be far more up for grabs. And that's often sort of said, and, and that my hope would be as, as the distorting effects of more than around 350 years of de jure, first slavery, and then Jim Crow begins to recede further into history. Some of these sharp racial divides we see, not just in politics, but on Sunday morning and, and every, you know, in other aspects of life will start to ease. What is, often happens is it's sort of looked at as, well, the, these African-American Christians, what's happening with them is this just artifact of a unique past? Well, what about Hispanic Christians? What about Asian American Christians? I mean, why is it that if you look at evangelicals, evangelicals who are not white tend to make different decisions and it's not just black Democrats? And we don't really wrestle with this. And one of the reasons we don't wrestle with this is it always goes back to abortion. So whoever is pro-life, no matter their no matter their qualifications in any other way, if they're going up against someone pro-choice, you vote for the pro-life politician. And I, and I think that, you know, we've now got 40 plus years of pro-life advocacy, pro-life litigation, pro-life legislation, pro-life cultural engagement to see what how what's most effective at ending abortion. And what I find is fascinating is that if you look at the abortion rate in this country in 1981, it was around 80, 81 area. It was the highest shot up after Roe v. Wade. And then the abortion rate went down during the Reagan administration, the first Bush administration, the Clinton administration, the second Bush administration, the and the Obama administration. And the first numbers say in the first year or so, the Trump administration, it went down as well. The abortion rate is now lower than it was before Roe. What that suggests to me is that there's something going on that's not just law and judges here in the United States about abortion. To the extent that we focus exclusively on law and judges with a, a presidential candidate when you're talking about the long-term fight against abortion, to the exclusion of everything else, perhaps you're missing the boat about what's really important about reducing the abortion rate. You get a lot of people who say, well, if I don't vote for Trump, more babies will die. Well, that's not necessarily been the case for 40 years. Right. Uh, and so, but, you'd, but you'd be sympathetic to Moore's argument that there has been hardening on the Democratic side, even as you've seen emerging troubles on the Republican side. There have been just went through this, you know, some of these elections here. We had one in, in Chicago where there was a pro-life Democrat party kind of through uh, to the side of the road. And, and there was a strong move and, and that Democratic Party is far less welcome to pro-life Democrats and that there's a hardening on you know sexuality and a number of these things. But so, that's why I say necessary, in my view, nece necessary, but not sufficient. So 
But again, you know, this hardening didn't just happen. Democratic Party on sexuality and marriage and abortion right now in 2020 is no more left than it was at 2016, with the exception of losing the one, one Democrat who was pro-life in the House. It had moved far to the left on these issues in Obama's two terms. And the abortion rate kept going down. And the interesting thing, and this just talks about the complexity of this issue, more pro-life laws were passed in the last five of Obama's two terms than had been passed in any five-year period since Roe. Why was that? Well, because Obama's policies and sort of that far-left move of the country under Obama was so unpopular that the Democrats lost seats at scale in state houses across, across the nation. And that's where the abortion fight is fought more, right? That's right, the real tip of the spear. A lot of people don't realize this. If you, you can have a president who's pro-life, but if he costs his party down all the way down the ballot, you'll end up with a nation with more pro-abortion rights laws, even with a pro-life president. That's how complicated this is. But we put everything on the presidential race and we say, well, it's going to be, America will be more or less pro-life depending on the president. So I guess, so one, one question, I'm sure you get this all the time, but I guess the question is, you've been pretty clear on leaders that you're saying, you know, if you're a leader, just watch, watch your rhetoric in terms of minimizing the character issues, the moral character, and, and kind of the, the 1998 resolution, the character does count in public office, like cling, you know, cling to that. For the average voter, like, what's the, what's the call? Like, vote and feel guilty about it? Go third party? Like, what's the, like, what is the kind of, what is your hope for, as you say, the, the woman in your church that you, that you were talking to, I guess, be more informed, but ultimately they got to pull a lever. What, what yeah. are you hoping that they do? I go back to 2017 in the Senate race in Alabama, Roy Moore taking on Doug Jones and Roy Moore had been, you know, accused by multiple people when he, of sexual misconduct towards teenagers, including teenage, some teenagers who were below, you know, legal age to consent to sexual activity. In addition to that, he had this awful record of really vile and pretty bigoted statements, not anyone's model of what a U.S. senator should be, running against a Democrat who was very much pro-choice. And the heated rhetoric within the Christian community over that election shouldn't be minimized. I remember walking in, because I opposed Roy Moore, I remember walking into a basketball game at my son's Christian school, and there was a family that actually turned their backs to us as we walked in because of our opposition to Roy Moore. And the argument was, well, you know, if Roy Moore loses and then like one, I can't remember if it was one or two at the time, one or two in the 2018 Senate Republicans lose, then no more judges. And judges were the whole point of electing Donald Trump. So if you want to preserve what 2016 was about, you got to elect Roy Moore. And about 250,000 or so Alabama voters, mainly Republican, because this is Alabama, mainly Republican evangelical or self-described evangelical, either voted third party or stayed home. And Roy Moore was removed from American politics. He tried again in 2020 to run in the primary, got an infinitesimal fraction of the vote because he had accomplished the impossible. He lost a GOP Senate seat in the state of Alabama. Now, I would ask people, is the United States Senate better off or worse off without Roy Moore? Is the American Christian public better off or worse off not having to constantly have to deal with Roy Moore's version of a public 
Christian witness. I would say it's better off. And what happened is Alabama, a a critical mass of Alabama Christians said, we're going to use the incredible power that we have in the Republican Party in the state of Alabama to say no, to veto a cruel person, to veto a cruel person from being a standard bearer for our party. That's my request. Use the power that you have to veto as a veto against cruelty against malice and against low character, and then rally back to the flag if the flag is worth rallying around when there's a person of better character. And have faith that the United States of America is stronger than crumbling to pieces over a lost election. And that's sort of the last thing. This Flight 93 nonsense, that where it's sort of like you've got to vote or America will come to pieces, where religious liberty will come to pieces, abortion will come to pieces, I've been in the religious liberty fight. My first case I volunteered on was 1992. So that's 28 years. When we formed the pro-life group at law school, that was 29 years ago. I have seen progress in the fight for religious liberty and in the fight for life for 28, 29 years. That's through Republican presidents, through Democratic presidents. We have won cases in front of Republican-nominated judges, Democrat-nominated judges, the world does not end a, pre- a president from the other side, but our witness is hurt if we sacrifice our principles and we sacrifice our integrity for the sake of supporting a cruel and malicious and deceitful man. David, I I know that your opposition to Trump has really you know, made your family vulnerable slash the subject of really cruel attacks at various times. And obviously you've talked about just some of the visceral responses that your neighbors and people that you know to church have had towards some of the positions that you've taken. I'm really curious though, one of the things that came up in kind of the online reaction to Mueller's remarks last week was a sense of grief and disillusionment towards evangelical leaders who it seems like there were many Christians thought were above supporting someone like Donald Trump from office. And I'm really curious if you can just talk about how you have processed your own disillusionment regarding watching many white evangelical leaders decide that they're not only going to support or that they're not only going to vote for Trump, but also to support him without very much criticism whatsoever. Certainly in the first round and back in 2016, there weren't that many people that surprised me with their support for Trump. So I wasn't disillusioned because I didn't have a a tremendous amount of expectations to the contrary. I think I have been a little bit more distressed as time has gone by and the and the really significant pressure has been brought to bear that some folks have, you know, really dramatically changed their their public positions about the importance of character in politicians. I'm an all five point Calvinist. Um and in the the, the tea and tulip indicates that we as people, we've got problems, me included. If we're gonna sit here and we're going to say we're going to expect explosion of virtue in the face of really intense cultural pressures to the contrary. And I do mean really intense cultural pressures to the contrary. We're going to be disappointed. And and the other thing I think, though, is in this podcast, I have said some pretty stern stuff. But I do think we make a huge mistake when we take a human being who makes a political decision, even a political decision that we think is so wrong as to be sinful, and use that to evaluate the totality of that person. That's not how Christ approaches us. I guarantee you there's decisions that I have made that 
have been sinful throughout my life. And thank God I'm not defined by them. (laughs) That's not the definition of who I am. And I want people, if I'm doing something sinful, to address it with me and to call me out on it. And I do not believe that that is condemning me. I don't think of that as you're saying to me, well, I hate you. We, we get in this binary where we say either I have to agree with somebody 100% of the time on everything that's important, or I, I hate them, or I condemn them, or I'm judging them. I have all kinds of friends who are on the left, and we disagree about a lot, but we love each other. One of the things that distresses me about this Trump moment is I've seen an awful lot of people approach me and they say, I've always respected you until you came out against Trump. And I'm thinking, that's one piece of who I am. That's one piece. And I have to remind myself of that feeling of injustice that I, re- that I feel when someone looks at me and says that when I'm talking to people who I think are making a very serious mistake and turning back their backs on, I believe, you know, their own articulated principles or minimizing the truth, sometimes hiding the truth, shading the truth to support Donald Trump. This is a part of their lives. It is not their lives. And even if it's a big part of their lives, man. To think of Christ, the the level of of grace (laughs) uh, demonstrated at the cross, how can I hate? How can I consign someone to the outer darkness? I mean, I can't, you know, I, I just wish that we could have a serious conversation about it, even an emotionally fraught conversation about it, and realize that this too is covered by the blood. We are all sinners saved by grace just as I may feel justified in calling out what I think are lies and deceptions coming from the church in some areas, I do that and fully knowing that I that there, there are many ways that I've fallen short and would hope that I have a soft enough heart and an open enough heart to hear when people call me out and to repent when people call me out. Well, thank you so much, David, for discussing all of this with us. We know this is <laughs> if not your life's work, the past four years work that you've been perfecting. So thank you for joining us for this discussion. For people who have reactions, comments, or questions, please send us an email. We're at podcast at christianitytoday.com. We're also at CT Podcasts on Twitter. Now's the time of show we call Precious Moments. We ask everyone to share something that has brought them joy recently. Ted, are you ready to go? I am. Yeah. I'm, you know, as I said at the beginning of the podcast, you know, you alternate between this. I think I'm getting, you know, getting used to this coronavirus isolation thing and then hitting hitting that wall. But I am just grateful for sunny days and the flowers coming up. You know, the tulips have started to come up here. And my precious moment is just these daily walks in the neighborhood and in a few local places and in the bird feeders that I got for, for Christmas. You know, that the birds are coming out and the blooms are coming up. Do you have a route that you normally take on your walk? I try to mix it up, you know. It's a pretty neighborhood. It was prettier when we moved in before the emerald ash borers took down all the ash trees. There's blooms coming up. You know, I grew up out west in Hawaii and in Seattle where beauty smacked you upside the head. And it has been a multi-decade discipline for me to appreciate <laughs> the subtle beauties of Illinois. But that, I mean, that's true. I mean, I, I spent the first, you know, 10 years here 
really being bummed out that there, you know, in, in what I considered there to be no beauty here. It took a long time for me to say those wildflowers are beautiful. You know, those those trees are beautiful. Yes, I may not have amazing oceans and amazing mountains, but Illinois is a very beautiful place, and especially in April, it is a very beautiful place. And so I I'm appreciating that, especially this year, much more so I think than other years. So. That's, that's my that's my precious, I don't know, not so much a precious moment as a precious season, but moments are of un, <laughs> unspecified length. How about you, Morgan? Oh, you know, I'm supposed to say my social media, aren't I? At Ted Olson. That's Olson with an E on, on the Twitter. I had the chance to talk to my aunt and uncle in Maine this past weekend. And then a couple weeks ago, I had talked to my family members that are in Hawaii. It is very ironic. People have talked about how coronavirus seems to be leading people to reach out to people that they haven't talked to in years, even though you don't necessarily have any opportunity to see them. And, you know, I'm sure I could psychoanalyze exactly why that is and why some of us have become afflicted to that. But I am grateful that that has the way that you know, this desire to connect with people has manifested because I've had some great conversations with them. Yeah, like I said, I'm not talking to them pretty regularly at all, much less seeing them. So it's been really nice to have these just hour, hour and a half long opportunities to catch up and hear hear where everyone is at right now. People can find me at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L on Twitter. David, do you want to go? So I'm older than (laughs) y'all. So I have college age kids. I have three kids, 21-year-old daughter, 19-year-old son, and 12-year-old daughter. And my 21-year-old daughter is married. Uh, When you drop your kids off at college, it's really, man, it was a lot more emotional than I thought it would be. And the reality is when you do that, there is sort of a, a sense of turning the page and the amount of just sheer time you have with your older children. There's a real sense of loss to that. Starting in early March when the University of Tennessee was canceled, here come the kids. And uh, along with our son-in-law, who's awesome, super wonderful, godly man. And what you end up having is what we've had over the last 45 days or so of our shelter in place here in Tennessee is this almost like turn back time moment, except with adult children of real time together. Some of our great moments have occurred and they're college students. So everything happens late at night. So we've had just some wonderful conversations and time spent together at 1 a.m., at 2 a.m. I mean, it was literally 2 a.m. this morning when I finally like chased my my oldest daughter and son-in-law out of out of uh, our room. But those are just incredible moments. And it's happening because of a terrible pandemic. But there is joy. And, you know, there are moments of joy and there are good things that come out of even terrible events. David, I saw you writing about this for a time because I think your your timepiece talked about this. And I also was struck by just the fact that, like, you have the capacity to stay up very late, which is not a capacity that all (laughs) parents have either. (laughs) I mean, you were talking about going like you just said that you stayed up last night until two. And in the piece that you wrote, you had also mentioned like 1 a.m., 2 a.m. I was like, what the heck? Who is this guy? How does he Yes, that's some serious energy. There, well, there, it's been sort of part of our family gene for a while. I mean, my my wonderful grandmother who died, you know, in 1998, she was a gym. And I don't know that anybody that she ever went to bed before anybody in the family in her whole life. No. So, <laughs> so it's just sort of the, the way we're wired. There you go. All right. So where can people find you outside of the show? On Twitter at David A. French is the easiest way, and that will connect people with all the stuff that I write. Thanks, David. 
that is it for us this week. Thank you everyone for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is produced by myself and Matt Lindor. The music is by Sweeps. The transcript is done by Boonmi Ashola. If you want to support this show, please go to Apple Podcasts, rate and review it right there. The podcast is available though wherever you want to listen to your podcast. We'll see you all next week. Bye. This episode was brought to you in part by the Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.